Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. We're going to go right now into our first guest. I'm so excited to have on the show today with me, Lucas Miles. I've known Lucas for a few years. He's energetic. He's on fire, engaging. I have so much fun every time we have the privilege of talking. And I'm just going to turn right to him. Lucas, I want to welcome you. Uh, first of all, I want you to take a moment to just tell about who you are, what you do. Then we're going to jump into your new book, Woke Jesus. Now, I hadn't heard that Jesus was woke. And of course, he's obviously not. But I'll have you define wokeism for us and then take off and talk to us about that book. And if you want to refer to the previous one that you've written. But first of all, welcome to the show. And thank you for just beginning by telling a little bit about you so people know Lucas Miles a little better. Dr. Carlo, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to be on the program again, and, and always good to see you and your bride, and and uh, just so thankful for the work that you guys are doing, uh, not just in this nation, but really around the world. Uh, it's it's important, and you've really paved a road, I think, for um, a lot of the rest of us, and so thank you for that. Um, if, hello, everybody. Uh, as, uh, as Dr. Carlo said, my name is Lucas Miles. I'm the senior pastor of a church called Influence Church in Granger, Indiana, that's just outside of the South Bend, Indiana region. Uh, you might be familiar with the University of Notre Dame. That's not too far uh, from where we are. I've been pastoring here. Uh, this is actually going into my 20th year that we started the church. And so I've been doing this for a while. I started preaching at 17. Uh, so I'll be 44 this year. So I've been going on, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite a few years here in full-time ministry. And and uh, it just gets better every single day. Um, I put my first book out. Well, where is the church? Yeah, so the church, yeah, so it's it's Granger, Indiana. So it's about uh, uh, just just it's suburb of South Bend, Indiana. And yeah. the name of the church? It's Influence Church, but there's no I. It's just N F L U E N C E, and we <laughs> podcast and live stream our services. And so if anybody wants to to maybe stop into uh, to those either in person or online, it's we're easy to find. Awesome. Well, yeah. tell me about this book, Woke Jesus. Yeah, so uh, my last book was called The Christian Left, which, you know, you had me on the program for that. And that book, um, you know, it, it kind of blew up. I was very uh, I was very blessed by what the Lord did with that. Mike Huckabee had done a cover endorsement. And I, I went all over the country teaching, speaking, uh, um, you know, media, radio, all of these things. And in uh, the, the first book, The Christian Left, I was addressing really the um, what was going on in the church in relation to progressive Christianity. Uh, but what I found is that there was still a lot of confusion about how we got here, how to recognize all of these different aspects of wokeism and progressive uh, thought within the church. And I realized very quickly that there needed to be a follow-up work to this that would that would help provide some additional answers. And I set out my goal, if I can say this, uh, um, it was I wanted to write the definitive guide to wokeism in the church and really give Christians a resource that not only provided the history of wokeism, but provided a roadmap for how do we break free from this with inside of Christianity. And so uh, this is this is the book here. I got the copy I can hold up there. So Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroying Christianity. Uh, it's available through Humanix Books, which is Newsmax's publishing arm, uh, and uh, releases here uh, here uh, soon. Available for pre order right now, uh, so you can go ahead and order it. and And the audio book's already out as well uh, on Amazon and other platforms. So, um, but this this book, uh, my my inspiration in many ways was, uh, and maybe the 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 church history buffs on the call might enjoy this was the the early church father Irenaeus. He wrote a book called Against Heresies in the 2nd century. 
And in the foreword of the book, um, he was addressing really the error of Gnosticism. And what he says is that essentially that the reason why the first century church was not able to refute Gnosticism is because they didn't understand it well enough. And then he goes on to write this 600-page book trying to help the church understand the dangers of Gnosticism in order to really help them be able to break free uh, from that and keep the purity of the gospel. Um, you know, this, uh, uh, I, I don't at all claim to be Irenaeus uh, by any means, but my my hope was that I could play a small part with this book in helping the church understand the dangers of this neo-Gnostic movement, which is, uh, which is known as wokeism. And really how this was affecting the church, how it was, you know, I, I compare it to sort of two tangled fishing lines that wokeism has come into Christianity and sort of knotted itself together to where it's very difficult today to discern where does the gospel end and where does wokeism begin. Um, and we've seen these, uh, what I call these theological modifiers or theological hitchhikers that have attached themselves to Christianity uh, starting, you know, really, we could go back uh, even several hundred years to this progression that has led us to where we're at today. So in the book, I deal with uh, sort of this post-Enlightenment period where we see a rise in what was known as the historical Jesus movement. It was basically an elevation of Jesus's humanity over his divinity. In are, you talking now, are we talking now 1800s? So this it actually would have began in the late 1700s, uh, but but the 1800s is certainly where a lot of it picked up its steam, and that's where probably the most notable period. Uh, and it ended with a, a book by um, Albert Schweitzer named uh, uh, "The Quest for the Historical Jesus." It's probably the most famous work out of that. And Schweitzer rightly is very critical of some of the early quests, um, but then he goes on his own quest for the historical Jesus. And and really, he he ends um, with not a whole lot of help in figuring out who Jesus is. There's there's still a lot of mystery. Um, and Schweitzer was was a brilliant mind, but he was still elevating Jesus's humanity over his divinity, and he applauded a lot of the early searches uh, in in doing so. And so this sort of started and gave birth to what a lot of people would know in the early 1900s to the social gospel. And of course underlying all of this is this sort of Marxist substructure in the 1800s that came out uh, that that started impacting the Christian faith. Uh, and that that eventually jumps over into Latin America with a priest by the name of Gutierrez. And, and Marxism uh, um, becomes embedded in the Catholic Church, or at least sects of the Catholic Church at that time, uh, in the form of what's known as liberation theology. And so if we're kind of just tracing the history of how do we get, I mean, how do we get to where we have churches that are hosting drag shows? How do we get to the point where we have churches and Christian leaders that are saying that, you know, Jesus is, uh, um, you know, uh, it would promote socialism or that Jesus uh, is, is you know, uh, trans affirming or something like that. This, how do we get here? And I think it's important to understand that, that we see that this snowballed from uh, uh, really a Gnostic substructure, this Gnostic framework. It jumped in the Enlightenment with thinkers like Kant and Hegel that inspired the historical Jesus movement, which eventually gave rise to the social gospel. That then jumped over to Latin America in the form of liberation theology. And then that Marxist thread jumped back to America in the form of uh, Black liberation theology. And certain segments of the African-American church really embraced Black liberation theology from a uh, uh, the founder of that, which his name is it was James Cohn. Uh, James Cohn just passed away, I think, about in the last 10, uh, 10 15 years. Uh, he came to the Obama White House, was promoted very strongly there. He was actually a tenured professor up at um, uh, up at a university not too far from me in Michigan. And 
you know, Cone um, was, uh, I, I basically, the way I describe Black liberation theology, it, it, is, it's, um, it was the spiritual predecessor to critical race theory. Uh, that's really, you know, uh, critical race theory is sort of an agnostic version of Black liberation theology. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a Mercer University professor who made national news because she gave a prayer. And in the prayer, she says, Lord, help me to hate white people. And she prayed this. And the news, of course, picks this up and everybody's talking about, you know, that, that she was being racist towards whites and, and you know, hate speech. And there was all these conversations that were happening. But what everybody missed is the fact that this, that this professor from Mercer University, that she was actually being, she was trying to be pious. And she was trying to be pious to the tenets of her faith, which was Black liberation theology. And according to James Cone, there are two things that somebody has to do in order to be pious or righteous within Black liberation theology. The first thing is you have to hate your oppressors. And the second thing is you have to recognize that you're oppressed. And this woman, you know, although it sounded like hate speech, and arguably it was at some level, it was really an attempt to try to embrace the tenets of Black liberation theology and live out the teaching of James Cone and this embrace of sort of this, this, uh, um, this blend of of uh, of Marxism, oppressed versus oppressor, that was injected into this this ethnic uh, race orientation that gave birth to Black liberation theology. If we go on, that eventually led to uh, uh, the radical Black feminists. It led to the birth of critical race theory um, uh, with with Bell and and Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and that that kept snowballing until uh, simultaneously we see the birth of the seeker sensitive movement. And just like during the Enlightenment, where there was a um, a crisis in the church because so many people were pushing towards reason and logic as being the highest ideals, and and the the, the historical Jesus movement was a response to that to try to salvage the gospel by making Jesus more approachable in his humanity and sort of uh, um, diminishing the reliance on the the miraculous side of the New Testament and really to the point to where they they remove the miraculous side of the New Testament. That during the the uh, postmodern age, more recent history, the birth of the seeker sensitive movement was done in such a way to try to answer the questions of culture, and they really removed a lot of the what they felt were the uh, uh, the roadblocks or the obstacles to people being able to receive Christ. They did a great job of making converts, but a very poor job of making disciples. I call this in the book uh, the what I call the genetically engineered church. Essentially, what they did, like a piece of fruit, they removed the seed from the church, which is the word of God, and it became very easy to consume the teachings of the seeker-sensitive movement, but it, it had one problem. It was, it was impotent. It, was, it wasn't fertile, and it had no ability to be able to produce a second generation of believers as a result, and so it lasted only for that one generation. And so those that were raised in the seeker-sensitive movement and kind of came out on the backside of that, it, they were became very perfect soil for this new form of progressive Christianity to be really inserted into culture. And I think the left has realized, and when I say the left, I don't just mean, I don't mean Democrats. I mean, I mean, radicals who have a desire to see the, the, the Western framework of society, of society uh, um, be, be demolished, that they had an opportunity to insert into Christianity, a lot of confusion, a, a lot of doubt. And they did this in the form of progressive Christianity uh, in the book, I trace some of the dark money that went into uh, uh, Christian organizations and Bible colleges in order to fund some of these these initiatives. 
uh, and create confusion and put you know various activists on on boards around this nation. And what we had is we had progressive Christianity went from where it was very segmented in some radical denominations like uh, maybe um, gay affirming um, uh, uh, you know Episcopal groups or Lutheran churches. And now all of a sudden we have progressive Christianity jumping on a mainstream level very, very quickly um, in the form of, of really this embrace of social justice over the gospel. And, and it began a rewriting of essentially who Jesus is. The nature of my book, Woke Jesus, really what I'm on is a quest for the biblical Christ. I'm not interested in the quest for the human Jesus. I'm interested in the quest for the biblical Christ that we see presented. And if we, you know, in today's world, it's almost not enough to say, do you believe in Jesus? Because the next question that you have to ask is, well, which Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the Jesus of, of the historical Jesus of the 1800s? Do you believe in, in the, uh, the, the Jesus of the Third Reich, of the Aryan Church? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Black liberation theology? Do you believe in the Jesus, the, the sort of social organizer of the social gospel? Or do you believe in the biblical Christ? And I believe that we have to help people to be able to unpack these false um, iterations, these false expressions and images of Jesus that are being presented in order to work our way to find the real, true biblical Christ who offers a, uh, a true solution, a good solution, a righteous solution to issues of justice, to issues of, of, of sin, to issues of, 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 of um, you know, oppression in this society, but who ultimately reveals through his, through grace and truth, a gospel that gives believers, whoever believes in him, an opportunity to spend eternity with him and a, in, in a place that we call heaven, where he writes every single wrong and, and where justice is finally uh, um, issued uh, to all those who are found outside of him. And so that, that's at least a little bit of the heart behind this book. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intense read, I think. It's, uh, it's historical. I hit a lot of the modern concepts of what's happening, some of the current events. And ultimately, I try to give believers a roadmap to how do we work our way through this on the other side? You've done a superb job giving it over. Way, way to go, my friend. Let me fire several questions. Yeah, please. Way back at the beginning, I suppose most of the listeners right now know what the word Gnostic means. Uh, and certainly we know First John is written against the Gnostics at the time. Um, explain that, uh, what Gnostic Gnosticism is yeah. and how it ties with spe in specific dogma how it ties to present-day wokeism yeah so I, I think first it's important to understand the difference between say a pagan faith and and what we would call a heresy when we you know there's a lot of pagan faiths that are just they're just you know uh, they have no connection to christianity whatsoever they're just other religions and as a christian we call those pagan uh in many cases what a heresy, though, is, is a heresy has an element of the truth of Christianity or the gospel, but then it has some sort of modification to it where it moves it into falsehood. The two, the, the first two heresies to face the early church in the first century was what we call the Judaizers, and we see those talked about. Paul addresses them in Galatians, and, and we also see evidence of them in the book of Acts. Basically, they were Pharisees that were um, uh, had a very legalistic framework to their understanding of Christ, and they tried to uh, uh, really approach the uh, um, the gospel through this lens of the Old Testament law and these requirements that they were trying to force upon anybody who believed in Jesus. 
uh, the, we see that addressed in scripture. The second heresy is what's known as Gnosticism. Gnostics, if you wanted to find a Gnostic in the first or second century, there wasn't a Gnostic church to go to. You would go to a Christian church and there would likely be Gnostics inside. In the same way that today, if you want to find a progressive Christian, you know, there are churches that lean more progressive, but really what you're looking for is you're looking for a church because wokeism has affected almost every single denomination. I think there are some that are that are more exempt uh, uh, from it than others. But for the most part, we see wokeism. We see it in the Catholic Church. We see it certainly in the Methodist Church. Southern Baptists are being affected by wokeism. Uh, this is this is uh, certain charismatic groups are more affected by wokeism. So this is something that's worked its way through virtually every denomination. Gnosticism, and the reason why I say that wokeism is a is a neo gnostic movement. Uh, Gnosticism was at the at its base level. It was a belief that the Creator God Yahweh. When he, when he created man and placed him in this system of creation, that man ultimately was subjected to an oppressive state by God. Now, Gnostics did not believe, though, that Jesus and God were, they didn't believe in the Trinity. They didn't believe that they were one. And so Gnostics believed that Jesus, and some Gnostics believed he was a man who uh, who became divine. Other Gnostics believed that he was just an apparition, that he was kind of just like the spirit being, and but not really flesh. Uh, but they believe that Jesus came to free us from an oppression that God created man in. And so in a similar way, when you look at wokeism today, it's based upon this issue of oppression. In fact, to be woke means a lot of people say, well, you know, how do you define woke? Woke is defined by a heightened awareness of systemic oppression and that you see everything in your life through this lens of oppressor versus oppressed typically with it with that has to do with either race or sexuality as being the two main areas that people are oppressed in and so uh, um it's neo-gnostic in that it believes that if we just you know kind of uh, um become enlightened you know gnostics believe that if you became enlightened to this to this uh, systemic oppression that you would be able to you know receive this uh, this enlightenment of jesus and be able to find freedom from this created world and, and in the same way, wokeism has a teaching that says that if you would just do the work, if you would get enlightened, if you would read, you know, Ibram Kendi, if you would read Robin D'Angelo, then you would become enlightened enough that you would be able to break free of this, this oppressive state of humanity, and you'd be able to become one of the, the, the woke righteous ones in this world. It's, it's, a, it's really sort of this cultic belief that's, that's morphed itself with the Christian faith. Uh, taking a step further uh... We, we, we think historically of histor what's called historical criticism, 1800s, and for the benefit of all of our viewers, that, that was a, a belief that ultimately did away with all the miracles of Scripture. Yeah. <clears throat> they were carved out, and the miraculous just couldn't be there. Their, their view of, for example, the resurrection was not that Jesus physically, bodily resurrected from the dead. They believed that the disciples were so impressed with Jesus it was as if he had resurrected, yeah. but they all knew his body was dead, rotting in some tomb somewhere. That's that's what this took us through back in the in the historical criticism, textual criticism, etc. of of the 1800s. Now, that resulted in a ma massive split in the by 1940s between now, now the world sort of World Council of Churches type of group and then the evangelicals. And Billy Graham became obviously the most central figure of that movement, Carl F. H. Henry and theologians. So now we have evangelicalism, but the wokeism that, con that concerns me is not the wokeism 
that's over here with the so-called liberals. We probably mm -hmm. use other words. It's already been there. It's been there forever. Yep. Uh, it's irredeemable. But it's the evangelicals now that have now embraced what we what we find now is here evangelicals are literally so divided it's as if the grand division that spawned the evangelical movement yeah now my, my question to you is does the term evangelical even have any meaning left mm -hmm. to it for us today is it retrievable uh I, i'm gonna i'm gonna just say i have kind of concluded i don't know how to retrieve it right now yeah yeah, yeah. And I've, I used ABC, authentically biblical churches, ABC, authentically biblical Christians, authentically biblical colleges. I've gone with that phrase because yeah. I don't know how to retrieve the word evangelical. It's the evangelical church that, and, and every denomination. I think every denomination has been hit yeah. with, with wokeism. Uh, respond to that sort of package of observation and a question was tucked in there somewhere. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I think I hear the, the question. Um, you know, recovery is a very difficult thing. And I think that whether we're talking about recovering faith in general or recovering a denomination, uh, or we could talk about recovering the constitution or, you know, it, all of that becomes very challenging because as culture takes on these identities and these mindsets um, without really a, a, you know, radical effort at um, education and and training and working through some of the these false notions, it, it does become very challenging. I don't think it's impossible. Um, you know, I, I think that what this is really going to take is it's going to take. Uh, I, I prefer the term orthodoxy right now. I mean, it's it's a uh, uh, you know that's kind of an old term for a lot of people. You know, I think of G.K. Chesterton when I think of orthodoxy. But but really, that's what we're talking about. And all orthodoxy means is right believing or right teaching. And so uh, the, here's the good thing that's happened, um, Dr. Garlow, is that we have I, I, what I've seen personally, and I, I'm sure that you've probably seen this as well, is I've seen denominations that 5, 10, 20 years ago never would have worked together are now showing up in the same room together. Uh, to sort of circle the wagons of the church because they realize that some of the secondary issues that they've um, maybe had in in contrast to one another or they've disagreed on, uh, we could talk about things like um, gifts of the spirit or not gifts of the spirit, uh, once saved always saved versus you can lose your salvation. You know these are these are important theological issues. Maybe even for some, you know, uh, women clergy versus non women clergy. I I think that could fall into some local issues at times for some of these churches. But the primary issues: the lordship of Jesus, the authority of the word, um, uh, heaven and hell, repentance, depravity of man. These issues, I'm seeing churches flock together to go, we have to do something about this. Uh, one of our initiatives that we're working on right now is called the American Pastor Project. The website is AmericanPastorProject.org. And we are gathering pastors together across various denominations uh, to sign a statement of biblical, a, a biblical authority, biblical orthodoxy, and to basically acknowledge that they are going to do their part to eradicate wokeism from their local pulpit, uh, that they're not going to give it a platform, whether that be socialism, communism, um, LGBT movement, you know, uh, CRT, whatever that is. And, and so we're seeing a lot of movement with that. And we're seeing pastors from Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches, even some Catholic clergy uh, to, uh, you know, charismatic pastors that are all gathering together saying, we're going to temporarily set aside secondary differences in order to stand for the gospel. And so is evangelical recoverable? Man, I hope so. Um, but I think it's going to take a lot of work by the church right now. 
And it's really going to take a lot of concerted effort by all denominations uh, to try to recover biblical truth. And so whether, I mean, if, if we lose the term evangelical, that's less important to me than if we lose biblical truth in this world. And so I think that, and I always tell people, I'm an optimist. I believe that I believe in the the victory that we have in Christ. I actually have a whole chapter on on the uh, uh, the atonement theory of Christus Victor in this book of the victory of Jesus, and and I believe that God wins in the end. But that doesn't mean that the church in America always is going to prosper. We've seen churches in other nations in Europe that have dwindled, that have shrunk back, and I think that uh, we are at that same crossroads today in America. And it's it's up to our generation right now. Uh, and I might even argue my generation right now to decide if we're going to be a church that's going to embrace the, the scriptures, if we're going to embrace Jesus as Lord, and if we're going to promote that, uh, and we're going to testify to that, and we're going to follow that no matter the cost, or if we're going to be ones that shrink back, give into culture, uh, and and really embrace this. And so um, there's more I could say on that, but I'll stop there in case you have another th question or thought. One of my thoughts is, uh, I wrote this in my book, the precar this precarious moment, the grand realignment. Here were Protestant churches. Here were Catholic churches. There was a big divide. Yeah. A huge divide. Then along came all that you've talked about, this liberalism uh, uh, or critical studies uh, from the 1800s, 1800s. And <clears throat> it split the Catholics with liberal Catholics versus traditional Catholics. Yeah. It split Protestants with liberal Protestants versus evangelicals, Bible-believing Protestants. So instead of the line being this way, Protestant versus Catholic, the line became this way. Yeah. Became, I, I assume the liberals have some connection with each other, but I know certainly for evangelicals, with the culture war getting so severe and our nations, uh, and, and what's at stake in all of our nations, many other nations besides just America, the result is we will work along some someone to preserve life in the womb with whom we have some theological differences. Yeah, We will work alongside someone to preserve marriage as one man, one woman, that we have some theological differences with. So evangelical Christians and traditional Catholics can work together vigorously to defend some very fundamental yeah. issues that yeah. we all feel uh, strongly about. And then you add in another dimension, along comes the Jewish community with reformed conservative. Conservative doesn't mean conservative anymore, did at one time. Then, and you have Orthodox Jews. I'm not talking about ultra-Orthodox, but Orthodox Jews yeah. who are not believing. They believe the Hebrew scriptures. They would value life in the womb and marriage. I use those as uh, two sort of classic points to demonstrate. And so they come in alignment with this as well and, and work together in, in salvaging some very, very important things uh, scripturally. But what is fascinating to me is within the framework of, of this evangelical movement now, we have another major division. And the implications of wokeism, uh, uh, tell me what your thoughts are on this one. It seems like, <clears throat> I'm not talking about this being the cause, but the symptoms where they manifest are they go soft on homosexuality. Yeah. And, and they go soft on, on even abortion. And they will say, well, I don't have to vote for a pro-life candidate. Because you pro-lifers, you're really not pro-life. You're pro-birth. You yeah. want to get the baby born, but you don't care about the baby after it's born. Therefore, I'm going to vote for this guy who's maybe pro-abortion because I'm convinced he has an overall plan for the poor and the disenfranchised better than you do, which is not a true statement, but that's that's the perception. And then suddenly with that, well, on the homosexual and transgender, let's just be silent. We don't have to. 
we, we, we want to win them to Christ. Well, now that's legitimate. We don't want to offend them. That's legitimate. We don't want to be belligerent. That's legitimate. We don't want to be angry. That's legitimate. But we also just don't even want to talk about. So the A word disappears from the sermons, abortion. The H word, homosexuality, transgender, T word. The M word, even marriage, disappears from the sermons yeah. because we don't want to offend because people might leave our church. Yeah. And under the guise of, well, I'm doing this for evangelism and outreach, it really is a case of I, as a pastor, am worshiping at the, at the, at the altar of nickels, noses, and numbers. And then we produce a congregation that is, has no salt and no light in the culture. Maybe some big numbers, but zero impact. Yeah. Because with all the growth in the church of the last 50 years, there is no community that you can name that I can name that is more righteous than it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, not one. And yet we have churches running 10 and 20 and 30,000. And yet we have communities that are on their way to hell. Yeah. Now that's a package of thoughts. You know where the questions yeah. are tucked in. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. That's that's good. Yeah. So first off, um, let me just say that that I understand the challenges as a local pastor. Uh, you know, I, I and yes, I I host a show on Epoch Times called Church and State, uh, which actually just won Program of the Year at the National Religious Broadcasters. Which we're very excited about and and you know, I'm an author and I have a podcast show and you know, I'm on the media a lot. Uh, but but at the end of the day, on on a day to day basis, I'm here in this office, which is in a local church where I pastor. Uh, in 2016, when I did a series on some of the cultural issues that were the hot button issues of that time, about how they aligned with Scripture and what we as believers, how should we should think about these issues: marriage, abortion, gender, uh, socialism versus free market, these sorts of things. I lost. Again, in a, in Indiana, that we're a triple majority red state. I lost forty to fifty percent of my church in about a three week period. And to the pastors out there and the church leaders listening, I would tell you it was one hundred percent worth it. And uh, you know, did we take a hit? Was I was I worried? Of, did I see the numbers? You know, the finances, all those things going to crisis. Yep, yep, yep. But you know what? It was worth it on the other side. We are in a better place now than we've ever been. Our ministry is exploding. It's growing. We're having people like look at moving here just to be part of what we're doing. Um, we have we're, it's one of the most uh, denominationally diverse churches I've ever pastored because we're finding people that are they're they're coming together over the fact that we preach the word, even though some of them are coming from all these different denominational backgrounds. They're leaving woke churches and they're finding us. Um, look, one of the accusations that get thrown at people like you and I is if we're going to talk about God and we're going to talk about, you know, reclaiming some of these things or restoring, you know, Christian values in our nation, of course, what people are going to throw all the time is, and the media has been very good at this, is they're going to label us a Christian nationalist. And I want to just speak to that just for a second, because I think it's important. I deal with this uh, in the book, and I also deal a lot with all these other issues from, from COVID to, uh, um, you know, mandates and everything else and kind of how, how that applies and focuses in or, 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 or uh, how that relates to wokeism. But the um, on this issue of Christian nationalism, uh, I think that this is important. It does not make you a Christian nationalist if you love God, you believe the Bible, and you believe in being a good citizen in a nation and wanting to promote righteous laws in a country. 
that does not make you a Christian nationalist. And I know that there's some conservatives that have embraced that term, and, and I, I don't have any condemnation for them whatsoever. Uh, they've almost said, oh, you're right, I am a Christian nationalist. And they've kind of used it as a way to puff that up. But I have a little bit different response in this book. And my response is, let's look at, let's let's see where that takes us. Because when you look at Christian nationalism, I believe it's really a dog whistle. And it's a dog whistle to try to paint evangelicals who believe the Bible as essentially being compared to uh, the church in Nazi Germany. And they, they, they're they using that word nationalist to, to basically, you know, create that parallel. But when you look at the church in Nazi Germany, and our mutual friend uh, Eric Metaxas has done such a great job writing on this, as well as many others, and you look at the church in Nazi Germany, what happened? There was two churches. There was the uh, professing church, which is what we saw Bonhoeffer come out of. And then there was the German, what became the German Nazified church, which was the church that, you know, uh, did what you're talking about. They bowed down to the state. They 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 were more concerned about, you know, uh, uh, keeping themselves out of trouble. And they were willing to adjust some of their beliefs. And as Metaxas points out, some of them were willing to, you know, trade the Bible for Mein Kampf and the, and the cross for the swastika. And, and these individuals, these were the ones that were the Christian nationalists. They rejected the teachings of the Bible in order to follow blindly the agenda of the state. And I believe that that same thing is happening in America right now, but it's not happening with the group that's being accused of being a Christian nationalist. Yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I don't care if it's we're talking Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Pompeo. Man, I, there are lots of great names right there. I don't care if one of them comes to me and says, I want you to believe something that's contrary to the word of God. I'm going to say, sorry, pal. You know what? I can't do it. You know, I might agree with you on certain other things, but I will never renounce my faith or my belief in the Lordship of Jesus or my 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 stance that the Bible is the authority, authoritative word of God that I'm going to guide my life by. And But what we see in the church of the left, and, and again, this radical progressive, this woke church, is that they have gladly handed over biblical authority, the Lordship of Christ, in some cases, even the divinity of Christ, in order to embrace the same agenda that the state has in regards to marriage, sexuality, gender, socialism, open borders, all these other topics. And they have become a propaganda piece for this message uh, that is that is anti-gospel. Now, there are times that the church has lined up with leaders in the state when that leader takes on a biblical mindset. Um, but there are there that doesn't happen very often. And so we can celebrate when a leader in the state, uh, at a higher state level, does take on a biblical framework. And there are times where it's it's almost like an eclipse happens, where the sun and the moon lines up, that we could say, hey, they're, they're aligned temporarily. But if that leader begins to deviate, the church must stand strong and must stand where you know it, it is intended to stand, and that is upon a biblical orthodoxy and the lordship of Christ. And so, you know, I'm I'm trying to give a way to empower believers to be able to push back against this, to be able to defend themselves against some of these ideological attacks, and ultimately uh, to lead them into being able to discern: Is my church going woke or not? If my church has a has a you know, if they didn't celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade, if they didn't, you know, if if they are not talking about some of these cultural issues, if they're not, you know, uh, uh, asking questions about what's happening at a school board level near you, then there's a good chance that your that your church is either just doesn't want to get involved in the fight at all. Maybe they're not woke, but they're just they're just you know fearful. And those churches need to be encouraged to stand strong and to get in the fight. Or it might very well be that they've gone woke. And so I think it's important that every single Christian. Uh, learn these aspects of what is wokeism well enough and how does it line up to biblical Christianity in such a way that they can discern in any situation that they're in 
uh, really the intentions of the person that might be leading them. Somebody, let's say, is in a church. They themselves are very biblical, but their pastor will not speak out on these issues. What should they do? Yeah, I, I think it starts by having a conversation. Um, you know, if if obviously if you're just attending a church for the first time and, you know, your past the, the pastor at that church does a message about, you know, uh, intersectionality and promoting CRT things and or pro-abortion or pro-trans or something like that. You don't owe anybody a conversation. Just go find a new place. Walk out in the middle of service. Don't leave a don't leave a don't leave a tip in the offering bucket. You know, time to hit the road. Uh, if you've been attending a place for a while and you're starting to be concerned about what you're seeing, I think you need to have a conversation. And I think you you know one of the reasons we've done this uh, AmericanPastorProject.org is we say, look, present this to your pastor. And if your pastor won't sign this statement that's based upon it's kind of a modern version of the Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed, if your pastor won't sign that then there's a reason and there's a good chance he's woke. And so he's either woke or scared and both need to be addressed. And so start, you know, present this to him. What do you think about this? What do you think about these issues? Do you agree with this? Even if they won't sign it, ask him, do you agree with this statement? Where do you stand on these things? And and have that conversation. It might be a pastor, might be an elder of various church leaders. Um, and and I think it's important that if they reject biblical orthodoxy or biblical authority or or these they, they're they're on the wrong side of these issues then you need to let them know where you stand. You need to let them know that you can't support them in this. And that, you know, if this isn't addressed, that that you have to go find another church. If you've been attending for a while, I think you give them some time for that to, for leadership to have a conversation about that. I don't think it needs to be very long, you know, maybe, maybe two weeks, maybe 30 days. And if that's not been dealt with, if that's not been fixed, if they've not snapped back in line, then I think you need to go look for another church and you need to vote with your attendance and your dollars and make sure that the places that you're supporting are places that are going to really uh, um, you know, teach biblical, biblical authority. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about secondary doctrines. I'm not even talking about uh, um, you know, uh, you know, charismatic versus non-charismatic or or and I, there's some people disagree with me. I would even put, you know, uh, um those, you know, you have a lot of charismatic churches where the, the husband and wife are pastoring, you know, kind of both pastoring together, and you have other churches that it would say, no, it's got to be only men. To me, it it starts with what do they believe about the Bible? Is it the authority? We can debate various passages. There's room for that within orthodoxy. What there is not room for is a pastor that says that he doesn't believe the Bible is the authoritative, inspired word of God, God breathed, that that it is to be received as our guide for life, or that he questions the lordship of Jesus or one of these other things. And, And that's really what we need to be on the lookout for. The great organizations we've looked to in the past, National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Today magazine, both founded in part by Billy Graham, uh, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, CCCU, based in Washington, D.C. These great institutions, how much confidence can we have in them now? Uh, I, I have very little confidence in most of those names that you that you just mentioned. And, you know, I think that uh, a place like Christianity Today, that's probably one of the ones I followed, you know, more. I, I address it, I think, briefly in the book. Um, you know, they, they have a managing editor that I think has as as very has, he's pushed an agenda um, uh, towards wokeism and, and towards a lot of these uh, things for what I would call Christian nationalism, by the way, I just defined it, uh, they're pushing the agenda of this leftist state. And, and, and I think that um, we, I don't think it necessarily means that we need to all automatically abandon every one of those, but we have to recognize that critical theorists and socialists and deconstructionists, they've been very happy to play the long game. There was a socialist party in America before the foundation of the USSR. 
Socialists have been whittling away at the framework of America for a long time. We've been the frog in the pot, not knowing that they're over there turning up the heat on us. And part of that is, you know, you look at the book, The Naked Communist and the 45 Rules of, of, of Communism. Uh, a couple of those rules are that their objectives were to, you know, basically infiltrate the church to promote a social gospel over a biblical gospel. And they've been very effective at doing that. I think there's a lot of, you look at the progression of, of seminaries in, in this nation, Yale, Harvard, you know, even a place like Notre Dame, even a place like the University of Michigan was very pro-clergy when it started. Uh, a lot of these institutions were founded in order to raise up um, uh, a strong, intelligent, well-educated, well-equipped, biblically-minded clergy to be able to take the gospel to this nation and, and, and ensure that the foundations of this country were built upon this Judeo-Christian framework. Um, but over time, we saw that drift. And I went on a tour, a historical tour of Harvard um, last year. And I was excited because I thought, you know what, this will at least cut through all the stuff. We get to hear the really the early beginnings about the clergy they raised up and George Washington's involvement and you know some of these things. And there was no mention of Christianity, the Bible, clergy. I mean, this is a nation that historically started on this, uh, made no mention in their tour of their history of their, of their nation. It's been completely washed away. And so there then was a need for this second tier organizations, the Biolas, the Wheatons, these other colleges that have, that have birthed out of the CCU that you mentioned. And, and now these universities, I believe, are in jeopardy. And we are seeing the Azusa Pacifics and, and others like that that are really being challenged by uh, and, and infiltrated by people on their board, as well as professors that have uh, uh, progressive ideals or have gone woke. And progressive, progressive pro uh, professors will eventually shape progressive pastors who will eventually shape progressive parishioners. And we have seen that trickle down into the local level through these universities. We have to speak out against that. I think the same thing, don't give your money to a place that's going woke. Challenge them on these things. Let them know that your dollars are dependent upon them solving these problems. Uh, even if you're an alumnus, your dollars are dependent upon them solving these issues before you continue giving. The good news, as I've said many times to the World Prayer Network family, there are some good Christian universities that are really standing and working yes. very hard to yes. remain solidly biblical. And I really applaud them. But I, I've said to you, before you send your kids or grandkids to the various classic Christian schools, you better examine very carefully. Do not believe what the website says. Probe deeply and find out. Find out where the president of the university stands on the issue of the authority of Scripture. There are some key questions you need to ask him. And the religion department, religion department and uh, various social sciences influence the entire organization. Ask where they stand on yeah. these issues. And if there's any wavering at all, don't send your child there. That could uh, affect where they spend eternity. Be yep. very careful in that area. I'm going to ask you as we close off here to just uh, give, I'm going to give several words and ask you to give clearly a layman's one sentence definition. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to go with progressivism, uh, deconstructionism, and I'll probably repeat wokeism again. So just so to help equip us all, when you use the word progressive, to me, progressive Christianity, if you got that adjective, I don't think Christianity can be the words attached to that, not authentic biblical Christianity. Yeah. And so that being the case, what does progressive mean in this arena, not just in the political arena, but specifically theological arena yeah. or 
we say progressive Christianity. Yeah, then, yeah. You know, we have we have progressive uh, um, politics and we have progressive theology. Sometimes you have people with a conservative politic who have given into progressive theology, and so they they are voting maybe similar to some of us, but their moral has drifted, and we're seeing that in the conservative party. I actually think that's a major issue right now in the conservative party. Um, we also see those with a progressive politic. And usually if you have a progressive politic, it's very rare you see somebody with a progressive politic that has a biblically minded or more conservative theology around a biblical uh, um, orthodoxy. Mostly when you have a conservative or a progressive politic, you do tend to see progressive theology more commonly. But again, these are stereotypes we're speaking in right now. So progressive to me, it is a it is a uh, um, a push for, it's a belief, you know, within Marxism, it was a belief that and and Hegel taught this as well, uh, really initiated it. That progress happened through conflict, and so whether we're talking Marxism, critical theory, Hegel, um, it was that we that society moves towards either enlightenment or utopia through working through the beliefs on certain issues and 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 basically moving into a new iteration. Um, Hegel had what was called the the philosopher. It was called the Hegelian dialectic. That, that he had this, this basic equation that would take a premise and then an antithesis to that, and then it would equal a synthesis. And that, that's basically how progressivism works. It, it uses that engine of the Hegelian dialectic in order to push people into basically a new moral, a new belief, a new uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a horizon for society. And I always say this is that progressivism uh, or that uh, the progressive thought, our progressive theology and Christianity, they both have a goal of progress. But within the church, our goal for progress is to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's what we are progressing towards. It's, it has a destination in mind. We don't want to go, we don't want to stop short and we don't want to go any further. We want to be, you know, transformed and, and really uh, uh, molded into this image of Christ where progressive movement is just about progress for progress sake. It's like a fire hose that's turned on and it's just going to spray wherever it sprays. There's no destination in mind. And eventually that just keeps drifting further and further from the, this destination that, that, that is Jesus. Deconstructionism. Deconstructionism is, uh, it's interesting. I was just reading um, uh, Eusebius, the first church historian, and he was writing about the second century, and he uses the term deconstruction. I thought it was so amazing. I have to send you this quote. It's awesome. Um, this is not a new thing the church has faced, but it has been a re, re uh, a surgence in this. This really came out of, in my opinion, a lot of the Nashville Christian music scene, uh, were, were some of the early ones to start using the term deconstructionist. Also, people like Phil Vischer from Veggie Tales has a very deconstructionist minded podcast, and Richard Rohr and other thinkers. Um, and that deconstruction is basically this idea that we have to challenge the beliefs that we hold on to. Uh, to try to boil out or try to distill what is true and get rid of everything that is false. And it, it's very similar to that, that quest for the historical Jesus that we talked about uh, and, and this idea of critical theology. It's all about sort of tearing things down to build them up, which, again, is part of that Marxist framework. And it's just sort of a, a way of looking at, at Christian doctrine through a Marxist lens. and But it's used to reframe... Um, Christianity to redefine terms, and it's it's very prevalent among younger people right now. This embrace of deconstruction, and I think that the church has to be very aware of it. Just so you all know, there was a one really well known Christian school uh, in Southern California uh, that used to host what they called Deconstruction Week, 
and they were quite bold about it at the time. Now they got enough criticism and pushback, they don't call it that anymore. But the goal was, I said, we're going to get rid of everything you learned from your pastor and your parents. Mm. Tear down your faith so we can rebuild it. Well, it got torn down okay. Yeah. It just didn't get rebuilt in yep. a lot of cases. <clears throat> and by the time the kid came home as a college freshman on Thanksgiving break, the parents could not believe the stuff they were hearing from that child because the, the child had just enough knowledge of this deconstructionism to try to refute everything foundationally he had been taught spouting off stuff, taking his parents quite by, by surprise. And a lot of those kids never came back to the faith yeah. at all. So this so-called deconstruction, instead they should have said, we want to build on what your pastor and your parents put in your life. Your parents invested 18 years and we are careful stewards of the faith of your father and your mother. We want to build and develop. That would have been the right kind of thing yeah. to say. Let's go with the word wokeism. And I, I know we've talked about the whole hour, but yeah. Give me a, as best you can, one sentence definition that yeah. if we go away from this broadcast, everybody could say wokeism is, and put it in as short a sentence with, with not too many dependent clauses, if you can. Wokeism is. Yeah. So let me, let me just add real quickly to this deconstruction um, definition or conversation. And I want to put, the, you know, I haven't used a lot of, you know, a direct quotes of scripture here, but, you know, Jesus tells us that he is going to tear down the temple. But then he says he's going to rebuild it in three days. And I think that what the deconstruction movement has done is it's focused on tearing down the temple of faith, but it never went through the second part of that. And that was rebuilding it back upon a biblical framework. There are times that you do need to deconstruct your faith if you've embraced legalism, if you've embraced licentiousness. You need to deconstruct those elements and rebuild it back on a biblical framework. Deconstruction is not bad if you're tearing down something that is, in fact, faulty but the only way you know if you're building it back on a solid foundation is if it's actually based upon the word of God. And so, you know, very important that we that we think through it in that way. And and typically when you hear the word deconstruction, I, I think it's it's used by people that have sinister, you know, objectives with it. And so we have to be very aware of that. Woke now, instead, instead of me calling that uh, deconstruction, I would call that repentance. <laughs> <laughs> right. Repentance. That's a great point. Yeah. Getting rid of those false beliefs. Yes. No, great, 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 great clarification there. So wokeism, again, wokeism is a, is a heightened awareness to, to a perceived uh, systemic oppression, typically in regards to um, race, ethnicity, skin color, et cetera. It divides everything and, and frames everything in your world based upon those markers. Uh, it, it's straight versus gay. It's, it's um, uh, you know, white versus black. It's, it's America versus, you know, uh, um, international, you know, uh, um, you know, or anything, uh, any other nation. Uh, it's always through that lens. And so wokeism uh, is, is, you know, woke Christianity is a Christianity that has, and this, I think, is a very, very important point here. What wokeism does when it gets inserted into the church is it robs the believer of the ability to be able to suffer for Christ. Because, you know, and this is, in fact, one of the only things that we can give God that, 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 um, that we have on this side of heaven to offer him is the ability to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's one of the only things that we actually have to give. It's, it's, it's the, 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 to be able to participate in the sufferings of Christ through Christian persecution. Not that we want to or not that we should be in a hurry to have that happen. But that when it comes, or if it comes, that I am I am choosing to use my life to glorify Jesus rather than myself. 
What wokeism does is actually robs God of the glory that could be brought in that situation of persecution. And it makes persecution about skin color, about socioeconomic status, about, about sexuality, about gender, about country of origin. And it robs from God that the reason why there is some sort of injustice is that it's it's because the world first hated Christ and now it hates us. That instead of that, it's the world hates you because of one of these other one of these other you know markers about your own self, and it gives the glory to us as the persecuted individual, as the oppressed individual, and it takes away that glory from Jesus. It is a false gospel. It has nothing in common with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is antithetical in every way to biblical teaching. I'm probably three decades plus older than you. My generation is when I look at what has happened under our watch. I'm not very proud of it as a pastor. When I watch what's happened in our nation, as I see what's happened in our world, uh, there are some reasons for great encouragement. And I praise God for that. We find many, many strong believers country after country after country standing yeah. under greater challenging challenges and, and persecution more than ever. And we certainly praise God for the strength of the body of Christ. That's very encouraging. But in terms of the overall impact on the culture in ways that we would have dreamed a number of years ago, none of us thought uh, 30 years ago, America would look like this or yeah. Canada, or I can go country by country uh, around the world. We would not, would not have thought much of Europe. Now, we are encouraged much of South America, encouraged much in Africa. There are great progressions of the fourth, not progression in a good way, this is, of the Christian faith going forward. But it's still a challenging world overall. And so, uh, Lucas, I'm encouraged. You spoke about your generation a moment ago. And you're exactly right. Guys like me are going to continue to exert all the influence we can for the name of Jesus and for authentic biblical scripture. Uh in every facet that the door is open to us at the same time we recognize that that mantle is shifting and and it's shifting to you and you're going to have to unfortunately uh undo some of the apparent damage that was done during our watch i'm not proud of that i'm disappointed by that everybody in my generational package would feel exactly the same way and uh, so in a sense, I feel like I owe your generation an apology uh, for our failure to hand to the next generation what was handed to us. Yeah. One might argue, well, it's, it's, this is prophesied in scripture. We know the deterioration of culture. We know things begin to, we can fill in the sentences on that one. And so there's a certain level of so-called inability, uh, 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 faithfulness, I'll say, it, that some people would see uh, to that. But my, my dream would have been for a nation to be considerably more in love with God, yeah. a community more in love with God, uh, walking in his ways, passionate about the word than, than what we saw as I entered ministry many years ago. Mm. But I'm very encouraged by people like you. You are forcefully articulate. You're a powerful communicator. You really have a grasp of the issues. You are a self-educated man, which I highly respect. Now you may be more than that, but you're, you're, that's the hardest way to learn, but it can be one of the most profound ways to learn. And you've captured the information. And I'm very, very proud of you. I just pray, pray the blessing of the Lord upon you. May your may the tent pegs move out further. I think he can entrust you as you continue to walk. You walk in humility and you walk in purity. Humility and purity. I'm speaking this guy who's a whole lot older, 
already walking in humility and purity. So he can lift you up for you to have a stronger voice, a stronger voice, a stronger voice and greater influence and greater impact. Mm. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so grateful for you. Uh, just uh, as I listened, we, we interviewed, I interviewed you a long time ago and we've talked a few times and you've just continued to grow and develop in such a exhilarating way. So I'm uh, I'm your cheerleader over here clapping for you. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm the honorary president of the Lucas Miles fan club. So <laughs> praise God for what you're doing. Thank you, man. Dr. Carlo, I appreciate it so much. And, and let me just say here briefly that, you know, I think that you really exhibit and embody um, exactly what uh, leaders in your position should be doing. You are, you haven't hit the, you haven't tapped the brakes. You've got your, your, your foot on the gas, you know, with the ministry that God's given you, but you also make time and you've done this, you know, so generously with me by even even put me on the platform today. But uh, of, of course, with my last uh, initiative, you know, previous initiatives as well, you you've always grabbed a hold of people that you saw value in, and you've helped lift us up to a place that that we might not have been able to get to by ourselves. And I think that that's a great model for uh, for this generational transition that's going to happen over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years that we're going to see is that we have to look for opportunities. And eventually it's going to be my turn to do that. And I think we all should be doing this all the time is looking for those people in the generation below us to, to give them a lift up and to really ensure that, that those that, that can be trusted, you know, rise to the top with this. And so I'm honored by what you said. Uh, I, I embrace that, receive that prayer, you know, really over my life. And, and I'm just grateful for you. Tell one more time, the name of your website and the title of your book, and yep. then, folks, if you want to sow into this ministry, I'm sure there's a donation button somewhere yep. on there that you can yep. give as well. Go. So you can go to uh, you can go to lucasmiles.org uh, to find out more about me. If there's maybe pastors interested in having me in to speak or put me spell, on another spell podcast Lucas show. in this case. Spell Lucas. In yeah. This so case. it's L U C A S, and then the last name is Miles M I L E S dot O R G. Uh, the book is called Woke Jesus: The False Messiah Destroying Christianity. And uh, comes out through, uh, it's released by uh, uh, Humanix, which is Newsmax's publishing arm. And the, the, people always ask me where the best place is to buy the book. I mean, honestly, if, if you're looking for, if there's somebody out there that wants a case of books, contact us directly. Uh, we can get you special pricing on that. Uh, but Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of those things, is all of those are good. Uh, just whatever's convenient for you, grab a copy, uh, order that, and uh, you know, grab one for your pastor as well, and get that in their hands or any church leaders that uh, that you're that you're in contact with. And uh, just so thankful for everyone. I'm easy to find on social media too, Instagram, uh, um, you know, Facebook, other platforms. Um, I would love to connect uh, more with the audience. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.